Okay, back here with uh, Dr. Ann Zink. Woo, how you doing? I'm great. It's good to see you, Jeff. We've done a few podcasts, but it's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah. it's. Uh, I think back in Juno was our last one right at the beginning of yes, COVID. Yes, yeah. So we, we did one. I'm trying to think that one we did was when just when the, the plane was landing or it was going to land, that COVID plane or whatever from China. That was from a long- Wuhan. Yeah, I think it was after the plane had landed, but when I was in Juneau meeting with the legislature, because we did it in my office. And then I had met with you prior to that, and we did one on influenza, and right when I had just started the job. And you just reminded me, a long time ago, we, we did one three three before COVID. Yep. And you had Bonnie, who was like a student. Yeah, she was a med student. And she's, go, she's going, she's like in medical school now or? Yeah, so she's awesome. She was an EMS paramedic for years out in the Valley. Fantastic. I got to know her in that space and she was contemplating med school and decided to go for it. Is now going through med school, finishing up and applying to emergency medicine residency. She's working on a not-for-profit to do EMS education and yeah, she's she's rocking it. She's doing great. You know, um, lately, about three months ago I, on Hulu, I, I saw ER. Yeah. <laughs> So I grew up in kind of like the ER. I did, used to watch it a little bit, but so I started watching it and I've like got, it's like, it's 15 seasons <laughs> and I've been watching ER and I've really been, did you, were you an ER fan? What you watching that? You know, I watched some of it. It's been years since I've watched it. And now there are so many medical shows, but yeah, many years ago. So a lot of people have said that ER was like, they, doctors, people have said it wasn't, it was pretty close. Yeah. It's tough to say scrubs is probably the closest. That's kind of, I didn't really, that's like the comedy one, right? It is, but man, they are like spot on. <laughs> a lot of drama, like a lot of drama, a lot of. Uh, just kind of like, um, I don't know, just some of the humor there. In fact, I was actually just at a conference with a bunch of psychiatrists and emergency medicine physicians from around the state. And one of the presenta- one of the presenters was presenting essentially bits of scrubs and talking about our system of care now. So I, I don't know, they do actually a pretty good job of, of pointing out that. And you're still, that- you're still, you're the, still the chief medical officer, but you, you work Shifts at the the Matsu Hospital, right? Yeah, I do. So, yeah, I've been the chief medical officer of the state since July of 2019. And I've been practicing out in Matsu, working clinical shifts uh, for 14 years now. And part of when I took this job, I said I needed to I needed to keep seeing patients. And so I've been doing that the whole time. That's like a big theme of the ER. It's like the administrative versus the doctor. And then some of them go into the, and then they come back and then like they kind of forgot or they aren't like their skills aren't up to speed. Yeah, I mean, I think they're kind of the yin and yang of each other. Like, I quickly realized that if I didn't care about the larger system in which my patients got care, that I really couldn't care for my patients. If people were constantly having to worry about being bankrupt while they're having a heart attack, like, I wasn't being able to care for them in the same way. If I couldn't get them mental health follow-up, if I had a, you know, 16-year-old sitting in my emergency department for three weeks waiting for inpatient psychiatric care, I wasn't able to care for them. So I started to very quickly in my clinical career get very frustrated with the system of care and f- think and really feel compelled to try to recreate the systems and try to make the systems better so that it could serve patients better. So that's what ultimately drove me into this position. But in this position now as a chief medical officer, it's really easy to get detached from like what's happening on the ground. So I love going back and working my shifts quickly. So how often are you working in the hospital? I do about six shifts a month. So that's, that's enough to keep kind of up to, because if, if you're doing like once a week or once every other week, it probably, you probably start to lose like anything else driving or, you know, 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit like there's a lot of it's like, you know, riding a bike or, you know, driving a car that, you know, you need to keep doing some of it, but a lot of it you've done for years and are kind of used to it. A lot of administrators, um, I mean, I know people who work two shifts or four shifts a month, six shifts a month, um, feels like a, a good balance for me between being in there, but my state job is also full-time. So, and I want to make sure I give that full-time. So I, I tend to work like evenings and weekends, uh, to fit in my clinical shifts. So what's, if you're a regular ER doc, that's your full-time job. What are you, are you working like 12, like 12 hour shifts every other day? Or is it, cause I know a lot of them work, a, maybe when they're younger, it's like, it's like known to be working a lot. Yeah, it really depends on like the group. It also just depends on the demand. Um, our group has everywhere from eight until like 10 or 12 hour shifts, but it's usually more 10 hour shifts. You need to be available to stay later if, you know, the department blows up and needs to stay there. And people work anywhere from, you know, six shifts is kind of the low end for me to some people are working like 15, 18 shifts a month. Just depends on the, the person and the point in their career. So, you, you, you know, you were with COVID, everybody knew, I mean, I think... Do you walk around to people who are like, oh my God, it's Ann Zing. Do you get, do you, I'm sure you get that. <laughs> I do get it sometimes. Because when I get that and you're, you were like way more on the thing than me. You were like on the news pre- press conferences every day for, you know, a while. Yeah, it's been kind of fascinating to watch. If I wear my glasses versus don't wear my glasses. The glasses probably make it more noticeable. It's, that is true. Uh, so it felt a little bit like Clark Kent. Like I could put them on or put them on. And then now, like, I feel like there's kind of collective amnesia happening. So I get more and more like, I know you from somewhere. So a lot of people and like my friends that, you know, worked in like Channel 2 or on the new, they, they I know I know you. Yeah. <laughs> like I've seen you. I've seen you. I get that a lot. I get that all the time in the emergency department. Like I know. I know that voice from somewhere and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure we've met before. So, so you were like, I said, you were just everywhere during the COVID and things have, you know, really calmed down and you know, you're, you're, I have a lower, lower profile now, but I mean, is it, is it, do you, do you kind of miss that or do you like being back to work and not, not having to be on TV every day? I mean, I am here to serve my patients and that includes in this role, the entire state of Alaska, honestly, there was so much going on during COVID. I, the press conferences were set in some ways like the easiest part of the day. They were kind of like my break in the middle of the day. It was a chance to just kind of reflect, to connect, to answer the questions. And then the rest of the day was trying to problem solve through all of the myriad of challenges that were happening on a regular basis. So I wasn't even really that aware that I was honestly like in the media or on the press that much. So it was more like after COVID kind of settled down that people started to be like, oh, I watch you all the time that I started to realize so, how so much the, I was on there. So there was, did you see that? I mean, there was maybe a year ago. Did you see that poll that came out? Uh-uh. There was a poll that they, you know, they conduct these polls on. And most people like in politics, I mean, you basically have the governor, Lisa Murkowski, Mark, there's a few people that have this kind of like, they call it like top of, like people know who they are. You know, a lot of even like well-known legislators, most people don't know who they are. And there was a poll and I forget the numbers, but you had like super high name ID, but your approval was like 90%, <laughs> which is crazy. Like nobody really, I mean, Sarah Palin had that for a minute back in like when she first was elected governor. Yeah. I mean, again, like I was just doing work and just trying to serve people. And it's never been my goal to be in the press or to have my name recognition or to be known. So I haven't seen that poll. It always kind of catches me off guard. And I think kind of when things settled down with COVID, it, it started to catch me off guard when I'd be like, you know, getting my kids shoes at the store and someone would. I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people ask you like, are you run, what are you going to run for? You know, Cause, cause when you're really well known and you're really like, that's like the, that's like the winning ticket, you know, to, to, to get, you know, get elected. 
Yeah. I mean, again, like I, I come from a healthcare background. I feel really fortunate to be in this job. I feel fortunate that we were, you know, I was allowed to share the science and data as we were learning it in real time. That didn't happen in a lot of other states. Um, and I worked with an amazing team that was able to be supportive of that. And I oftentimes joke, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm just, you know, taking like one that. day at a time and learning as much as I can, partnering with as many people as I can. And and trying to live my life to the fullest, uh, so that's well, we got at. we got Heidi Hedberg now. She's the yeah. acting health committee. Now I, I need to get I need to get her on the podcast. She, yeah, she's she's she says maybe. <laughs> she's great. You'll she's, get her one of these days. Just talk to her. She should be good. But yeah. Um, yeah, so she she was uh, director of health or yeah. So she and I actually moved into this position at the same time. So Jay Butler was the director of public health and the chief medical officer. He's the guy who went to the CDC. He's the guy that went to the CDC, right? And there was no real deputy commissioner that oversaw public health within the commissioner's office. And so when Jay moved out of that role, he was like, I think structurally it would be better to have the chief medical officer sit within the commissioner's office and have that be separate from the director of public health. So we took one of the deputy director positions under public health and kind of changed that around. So Heidi moved into the director of public health just before I moved into chief medical officer. But we both kind of came in at the same time. And that was in like 19, well, you, you were, because you were still... For after the governor was elected, weren't you? And you were on your world travel with your family. Yeah. So I had taken that year from 2018 through July of 2019. And Jay went to the CDC in January of 2019. And at that time, talked to Commissioner Crum at the time and Heather Carpenter, who's done a lot of policy work. And the decision was made that, you know, I would come into this role once I returned back. So Dr. Lily Liu was kind enough to stand in as the interim CMO until I was able to come back. And then Heidi Hedberg stepped in before I did as the director of public health. And so she stood into that. And then I came in in July, even though we were talking a ton for those like six months pr prior to me coming in, in that transition between Dr. Liu and myself. And then I started in July of 2019. Heidi was the director. And then it was just really, we were both in those same roles until just recently when she got uh, named acting commissioner. So so uh, before Adam Crum moved to Revenue, he was he was, your, was the commissioner, your boss? Yep. So now Heidi's your boss. Yeah. So she went from being, yeah, How does that I work was her boss. Like now she's my boss. <laughs> How does that work? Like you guys are friends and you were her boss. Now she, is that, is that weird? Or does that just kind of, is it the same? No, it's pretty much the same. There's a little bit more like, no, you're supposed to approve this now versus last time I was supposed to approve it. Like sometimes there's a few of those like little things, but you know, Heidi and I uh, work really well together. We have very different skill sets and I think that's been one of our strengths. And um, I think we have gotten to know each other super well. There's nothing like, you know, kind of working through a crisis together to, to figure out each other's strengths and weaknesses. And um, it's, a, it's an honor to work with her. She is a doer. She gets things done. She moves quickly. And she's really come up within the public health system and within, um, you know, she's worked in all sorts of different environments, but she's been in state government for 13 years. So she really knows how a lot of the mechanisms need to work. And she has this very intense focus on what is going to serve the people of Alaska. So she's always like, what do the constituents need? What do the people of Alaska need? How are we How are we driving everything we do along those lines? And I've always had a lot of respect for her for that. And um, yeah, I'm excited to think about how we can make state government as efficient as possible. As you probably saw in the governor's release, there's the Healthy Families Initiative that we've been mm -hmm. working on for quite some time. And there's a lot to that. So super excited to really think about how can we make this the best place in the country to raise a family and the healthiest state in the country. So lots of exciting movement on that. And she, she and I worked together well. So when I was in Juneau, it's all like a blur, but it was last session or the session before I flew back and you've probably been to Juneau where there's no cabs. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, there's like 10 people there. I'm like, fuck, you know, there's like no cabs. So the cab came, it was a big, it was a big van. And I said to these 
people I said, were, and I, I recognized one of them. It was Heidi. Yeah. And I said, where, are you guys going downtown by each other? I said, yes, we share. And then it was Heidi Hedberg, and it was all these, like, Hess people, these women. And they were like, oh, my God, we're in the cab with Jeff Landfield. <laughs> I was like, oh, my. And so I was talking, talking to Heidi, and then we ended up, like, talking a little bit in Juno. She's great, yeah. And then I've run into her, like, several times since then. So she's, she's I'm a big fan of her. Yeah, I mean, she's a doer. She's she always an incredible hard worker. She's super kind. She always tells me to get healthy. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> she's very direct. Have you lost some weight, Jeff? I said, no, not, not some. She's like, okay, you need to, you need to get on that. Yeah. She's very, very direct. <laughs> I like uh, that. So yeah, she's great. So it'll be fun to see uh, her in this role. And you know, and I feel really fortunate in this role. I get to really stay as that clinician and that is my heart and soul. Um, she, she knows state government and how to make it work as efficiently as possible. And that's what we need. And really excited to have her in that role while I get to continue to be that kind of broad thinking clinician across the state. So speaking of, of my health, now I had my yearly physical, which I haven't had for a couple of years, mostly because of COVID. We just all kind of stopped doing things. But my dad always, he was Navy 25 years. So I kind of grew up, it was just like a routine. I just knew every year you get a physical. Yeah. That's just something I kind of, so I, I've, I've always got one. Um, so I got my labs and they were, I guess like Trump, they were amazing. Okay? They were, they were the <laughs> be, they were just the best labs. You, they were amazing. They were just, so I was like, why is my doctor? Who's kind of who's kind of a comedian? He's like, yeah. He's like, you gotta lose some weight. I told you that. And he's like, I, I checked the labs. There there wasn't a mix up. And I was like, wow. Thank you for the vote of. Anyways, I sent them to you. You did. And I told my friend. I was like, I sent my labs. He's like, why did you send your fucking labs to Ann Zinc? What's wrong with you? But now, just as a as a neutral third party here, I mean, they were pretty good, right? They were very good. I'm very happy because some people who who are like healthy. I have friends that are like health nuts. They run. They gym. But they have like super high cholesterol. Yeah. Or they have some other, you know, something going on. Yeah. I mean, genetics is real and plays a gigantic factor, but so does health and diet. And so that's why taking care of both is important. I mean, there's not much we can do to change about our genetics, but that's why getting regular labs done, knowing your family history can make a big difference in in your overall health. So why is it that, I mean, I tell my friends I'm getting a yearly physical and and often they're like, why are you doing that? Or uh, maybe I should do that. And I go, yeah, I think a lot of, how many people get a yearly checkup? I mean- yeah, I, I bet you it's a pretty small number. I bet it is a pretty small number. I don't I don't know great data on that. We do track how many people regularly see a primary care provider, um, but how many of those, quote, have a physical or not, that I don't know. But those are, you know, people in surveys who say, I have a regular primary care provider. But it's huge because you never know when something's going to happen. It's great to be able to have a primary care provider who you can touch base with, who you can talk to, who you can make sure you're doing okay. And then there are things that are really good to be screening for. So, for example, like we've had a huge rise in colon cancers and particularly mm. in younger people. And so knowing your family history will determine on when you're, you know, should be getting things like, uh, you know, colonoscopy to make sure that you're otherwise healthy. Um, but then also just making sure that you're getting your regular preventative care can catch diseases, can catch cancers early, can make a huge difference. So, I mean, getting, you know, getting blood labs, just that once a year, once every couple of years is a couple hundred bucks, right? It's not that much money. Of all the things that cost money and you know, healthcare, getting your blood drawn isn't that much. Well, you know, that is the thing. We spend a lot of time as a friend of mine, who's another chief medical officer, he says, you know, we spend a lot of money putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, all in all the King's horses and all the King's men. But the reality is, is we just got to do more to keep people's health healthy early on for prevention. And so having that regular check-in with your primary care provider makes a huge difference for prevention. And we need to find better ways to spend towards prevention instead of the much higher end costly expanses of care you know it's much easier to get a precancerous polyp removed than it is to have metastatic colon cancer because you can see i mean my doctor was telling me with the blood you can see a lot of 
like a lot of things will show up if something's off. Yeah. And they can say, okay, well, we see this. We need to look at, we should, you know, do some more tests. Yeah. And the other thing that I tell people all the time is time is a better diagnostic test than all the different fancy things that we do. And so that's why having a primary care provider who can particularly follow your labs over time can make a huge difference. So, you know, if you don't have a primary and you can only go to a health fair and that's your only way to check your labs, that's better than nothing. But seeing your labs over time make a gigantic difference. So the fact you have a primary, you know them, they know you, they can be honest about things like weight loss, and they can be tracking your labs over time and tracking your health over time makes a huge difference. And the other thing I was, you know, I, I, I kind of got surprised about is the number of people who don't go to the dentist regularly. Yeah, I know, right? Because <laughs> I go actually three or four times because I had braces when I was a kid twice and there was some like decalcification, you know, so it's like I just, my doc, my dentist, I had like a freaking what's it called, the deep root cleaning years yeah. ago, and then I have, like, one crown. Um, so I go probably more than I should <laughs> just because I want my teeth to be, you know. But some people don't go, and then they go, and then they realize, oh, my God, you have these cavities, you know, root canal, and then that can lead to other, I mean, don't they correlate, like, dental problems with heart problems? Yes, yeah, so you can get bad infections that can then settle into your heart valves and cause problems there, and, you know, our teeth are needed for good chewing of food, you get a lot of infections in there, it can cause sinus problems, and so, yeah, I mean, taking care of your health, physical activity, eating well, but then also making sure that you're, you know, going to the dentist, you're going to your regular primary care provider can save you a lot of money and a lot of time later. I got to ask you about this. I thought this was like a like a joke or a hoax. I was helping some neighbors shovel snow, yeah. And my friend said, be careful, be careful. And I said, what are you talking about? And they go, you get a heart attack. And I go, what, are you, what the fuck are you talking about? And then I pulled it up and there's some articles. Is it true? Do people get heart attacks from shoveling snow? Is that a thing? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, when the, we, you know, classically learn about heart disease in med school and residency, it's, you know, the middle-aged, 50-year-old, slightly obese guy out there shoveling snow. So with a lot of exertion, you can get a plaque that kind of falls off and then it was kind of partially occluding a vessel and it can fully occlude a vessel. Or you can get vasospasm where the entire vessel will kind of spasm down because you're exerting yourself much harder than you normally would. But that doesn't mean you should not exert yourself. You should just be doing regular exercise more regularly well, so the, that that's not the first time you did it. The one article I found, it said the worst, like, the death combination is, like, never working out, heavy snow, like wet snow. And you're out there, and so it's heavy, and you're exerting. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, oh, my God. <laughs> The winter does provide a lot of additional challenges. I mean, we see a lot of slips, a lot of falls, a lot of closed head injuries, like head bleeds, particularly anyone over 65 who falls and hits their head should go into the emergency department and be seen because you're at higher risk for a head bleed. Anyone who's a chronic alcoholic, we see a lot of hip fractures. Um, and then we do see people who have more heart disease and, and have heart attacks when they're exerting themselves. And when there's when you got to get your car out and it's stuck and you're lifting heavy snow and you don't normally exert yourself, it's it's a time that we can see it. So when someone says heart attack, is that like, what is that? Is it the like an infarction or is that a, the plaque? Is that the valve? Like what is, what is a heart attack? Because we, we think we all hear that. I think most of us don't really know what that means. Because then there's like fibrillation and like tachycardia, those are, that's not a heart attack, right? No, those are arrhythmias. So your heart kind of beats in a normal matter. And so like the atrium beats and then the ventricle beats, so like beep, 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 that sort of pattern, right? If it beats in a funky pattern, that's called an arrhythmia. And there's all sorts of different funny ways that it beats and it can like AFib is the most common arrhythmia that it's hit. Things like V-fib uh, are another arrhythmia that is not sustainable with life. Like you can't be in that rhythm for a long period of time because your heart isn't beating in a consistent way to pump blood. 
that's very different than a heart attack, which means essentially that one of your blood vessels or numerous of your blood vessels aren't getting enough blood through them in your heart to make your heart work as well as it should. This is kind of a basic description of it. It can be caused by numerous things. So um, a STEMI is an ST elevation MI. That's just based on your EKG. That's how you read it. An NSTEMI means that um, you're having heart disease and a heart attack that's causing your cardiac uh, enzymes like troponin to go up, but you're not seeing the changes on the EKG. So there's many different ways to kind of break it down, but essentially the blood vessels in your heart aren't getting enough blood flow. And it can be because you had a plaque that fell off and now completely occluded it. You could have plaques that grow and kind of just completely occlude it altogether. You can have vasospasm where the vessel itself kind of spasms completely down. You can have the vessel tear, uh, and that can also cause. So, so they say plaque. What's the plaque? Is that like you eat bad food? I mean, what, what, what causes the, it's like, you see those little diagrams on the commercials for the drugs and it's like, those, it's like building up, right? right. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if that's accurate, but is that kind of what's going on? I mean, you can kind of think it like your dirty drains. Uh, so, you know, not eating well can, uh, you know, cause plaque buildup. A lot of inflammation can cause plaque buildup. Genetics can cause plaque buildup. That's why we always ask, like, you know, did anyone in your family die of a heart attack or die suddenly under the age of 50? That makes me more concerned about a genetic abnormality that might make you a higher so, likelihood. So when somebody comes in, they're like, oh, my, like I'm in pain. You can put them, you can put them on the EKG and you know pretty quickly if they're having, you can tell if they're having a heart attack or? Uh, not all the time. So about 50% of people, you'll see some sort of changes on their EKG, but not all. So that's why then we do labs. So most people who come in with some sort of chest pain end up being in the emergency department for an extended period of time because we're doing oftentimes one lab, but then, uh, again, I said time is the best diagnostic test. So sometimes we'll do things like a troponin, a cardiac enzyme spread out in time. Um, you know, it's a constant evolving process. I mean, I think our understanding of what causes heart attacks, heart disease is constantly evolving. How we treat it, how we diagnose it is constantly evolving. So, you know, when I first started practicing medicine, we always admitted patients who were having chest pain that were at high risk to kind of quote, rule them out make sure they weren't having a heart attack and then really move to six hours. And now we have these high sensitivity troponins and oftentimes we'll do them just one hour apart. So we keep, we keep modifying how we diagnose a heart attack, um, how we diagnose heart disease, what we do for prevention as we continue to learn more. So why do some people just drop dead of a heart attack on the spot? And then some people are like, Oh, something's wrong. And they can, they can like come to the hospital or they can call the ambulance. Yeah. I mean, it depends on if your heart occludes completely and then causes your heart to go in a rhythm that isn't compatible with life. So that's why it's so important if you see someone who isn't breathing normally or not responding on the ground, you call 911, start CPR, um, and get an AED if it's available at all. Because those AEDs can shock someone's heart, so they may be in a arrhythmia that isn't causing their body to perfuse, mm -hmm. and just by that one shock. So the AEDs, um, they they can test for the, the arrhythmia. They, they know if it's supposed to shock or not, but like the machine can do it. Yeah, so that's exactly what the AED is doing. It's, it's reading the electrical activity of the heart and trying to interpret it and to see if a shock is advisable. And if a shock is advisable, it will say stand back and it will No, if you're in the hospital, are you, still, are you still doing old school paddles? <laughs> we still, we do have paddles, but we use stickers more often now. So oftentimes we'll put stickers. Uh, there's kind of in the same places as the paddles rather than so having So it's no more like, like the clear, it's not... Oh, you would still say clear because you don't want to be touching the patient. And so, you know, so say someone wasn't breathing, we put a breathing tube down, you know, you can let go of, of all the other things that are supporting. And oftentimes, you know, a patient comes in and their heart's not beating. There's a lot of people around at the same time. And so clear just gives you a chance to kind of step away. You know, I was just actually down in Girdwood and um, there was an AED right by the ticket booth right there. And my husband had walked into the bathroom and there was someone on the floor and he's like, I, I don't know what's going on, but you should go in there. Someone doesn't look very well. 
There was oh my a- God, if I was having a heart attack at Anzing Bazaar, I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you know, people didn't recognize that he had had a heart attack and was in a rhythm that was not compatible with life. Wait, so you wait, you were in Girdwood? Like you were you were there with your husband? Yeah, this happened years ago, but we were just down oh, there. Oh, I thought it was like last week. No. <laughs> this happened. That's an article. <laughs> that's an article. No, we were just down there last week. Well, we were just down there actually a couple days ago, but what made me remember it and think about it is that there was no AED immediately available when I tried to resuscitate this gentleman when we were there. And his wife has since donated an AED that's oh, right did, there. Did he, did he not make it? He didn't make it. No. Oh, wow. He had, no. So he has, was a heart, heart attack? He had a heart attack, yep, and went into a fatal arrhythmia and unable to get it out. Um, and we unfortunately didn't have an AED right there. So I actually just saw his plaque and and was thinking about him. When I was down there, his wife has kept in touch and kind of continued. I was, I, was just in a, I was just in a bar. I'm not going to say which one. It's one when I frequent. And I was actually, somebody was joking about, oh, if something happened. And I said, oh, we have an AED. And I said, an AED. And then I said, you guys have an AED? And they said, no. Mm-hmm. I said, you guys should have an AED here. Oh, I like it. Everyone should have, every facility should have an AED, Narcan, and tourniquet at minimum. Narcan's for the, the overdose. Overdose. And a tourniquet's for like massive bleeding. This is something else we should talk about. I mean, this is happening in Alaska. There was a study that came, you know, the statistics report that recently came up. But, you know, overall in the country, this, you know, this heroin and even cocaine, they're cutting it up with this fentanyl. And it's like, I think it was like 100,000 people died. There was a huge number of people that died. And it's way up from, you know, in the past. I mean, we've always had overdoses and deaths, but but this fentanyl stuff. I mean, so so this is a very dangerous drug. And then they have this synthetic fentanyl that comes out of China sometimes, and then, you know, people are making drugs and they they think they're a chemist and they chop it up with this really bad stuff. And, I mean, how does it work? I mean, a very tiny, tiny amount of this can can kill, you know, many people, right? If it's if it's put into the to the to the to a drug. Yeah. So fentanyl is a medication that we've used for years in the emergency department, uh, as well as in anesthesia. But it's a highly, highly concentrated synthetic opioid is essentially what it is. And so it just takes a very tiny amount to hit those opioid receptors. So it can relieve pain, it can cause euphoria, but it can very quickly push you over the edge to cause you to stop breathing and that's why it kills people. But it's pretty cheap to manufacture and so we're seeing probably about six out of 10 um, counterfeit pills in the state of Alaska have fentanyl in them. So you can just take one pill and it might just look like a Xanax or a Percocet and you think, oh, that, you know, my friend gave me one of these because my back hurt, I'm just gonna go ahead and take it. But you, can, you can't determine if it's a counterfeit pill or if it's a real pill uh, if, you know, someone's just giving it to you you didn't get it from the pharmacy. And unfortunately, just one pill can be enough to have enough fentanyl in it that can kill you. So we've seen a huge increase nationwide about the amount of fentanyl in. We're also seeing it mixed into other things such as, you know, heroin and cocaine. In other states, we've seen it mixed into things like pot even. And so, uh, you know, just really we're very, we're very concerned about the amount of synthetic fentanyl. Department of Public Safety has done an amazing job of interdiction, like trying to catch and kind of get as much as they possibly can off the street. And that's going to be critically important, but that's only one piece of it. So we all play a role in trying this to decrease deaths from this. This is like the Michael Jackson. That was, they were doing fentanyl, right? The doctors. <laughs> propofol, different one. Prop- yeah. So, oh, it wasn't. So he, I, he was doing fentanyl as well, but he died because of propofol. So I remember when I had surgery, I had like a sinus surgery back oh. in 2014. I'm pretty sure they did both. Yeah, likely. Fentanyl, because I remember... I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's great. And then they said count backwards. And like, I was like, I got to remember being, being to eight. And then I woke up. Yeah, that's about right. And it was like a total, like, you've time traveled. Yeah. But you can, for a second, you're like, ooh. <laughs> well, you know, everyone has a different reaction to it. Um, I have received, uh, I received fentanyl once when I had a cardiac procedure. And I got this tiny dose and it 
I hated the feeling. You I had a cardiac procedure? I did. I had a big hole in my heart. And so they had to actually go in and put this oh device God. in there to close the hole in my heart. So Like a long time ago? I was like seven years ago, maybe six years ago, seven years ago. So you know. can have that for a long time and not. I probably had it since birth and didn't realize it. Yep. So how'd they, how'd they figure it out? Uh, well, that's a crazy story. So, um, my yearly husband, physical. <laughs> it was not caught on a yearly physical actually. Um, my husband was out hunting and I was home with the kids and I popped out of the shower and I like was drying my hair. My kids were like, Hey, what are we going to do for breakfast? And I just couldn't talk. Like I could not have a single word come out of my mouth. And could you think? I could totally think fine. I was, was it like a, you thought it was a stroke. Well, you know, I'm like I'm young, I'm healthy, I have no other risk factors. I this can't be a stroke. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. <laughs> we don't ever get sick, but we're also human too. Uh, so I was in, I was in a solid state of denial for a while and trying to figure out what was going on. And I was like, okay, well, this has just got to get better. And then my daughter was like, oh, mom, why is your face drooping? And I was like, oh, man, that's not what I wanted to hear. And so. Oh, so, but it wasn't a stroke. Oh, it, it The heart was causing. So basically a clot had gone through the hole in my heart and it had caused a stroke. Oh, my God. And so then I went to go call a friend. I was like, oh, I should go to the ER. Even though, again, I felt totally fine. I just could not speak. And then when I texted, it made no sense. I can show you the text later. I've saved it since. Um, the text makes no sense. And I could tell it made no sense, but I couldn't make it make sense like i couldn't actually have you ever told anybody this uh i mean i'm this i'm is, honest like <laughs> wow so wait so you were having like a stroke because of the the, the the clot yep and obviously it like when it didn't cause long-term damage nope. i mean but it could, i've it always could been have, right? an awful speller but uh um yeah i definitely could have for sure uh, and i know many people have had the same sort of you know hole in their heart and have had long-term consequences so if it goes to the it could go to the brain it could go to the lungs too right the yeah, and so we're always having small little clots go to our lungs. Our body's always kind of breaking apart clots and kind of reforming. And that's, you know, you cut yourself and you need some clotting. But you don't want big clots that can then clot up your heart or clot up your lungs. And so our lungs always work as a bit of a filter of these tiny little ones. We worry about really big clots, and that's what causes like a pulmonary embolism. Um, P.E. P.E., exactly. That, that terrifies me. They're scary. They're scary. I was, I was, I was a few months ago flying somewhere, and I, I don't know why. I, I went gone to the gym Okay. A while for like a week before and I was doing anyways, I had this really bad pain in my leg yeah. and my calf and I was like oh it's probably nothing and then I was like thinking man I wonder if I have a I was like scaring the shit out of myself because <laughs> I was like if I have a pulmonary embolism on an airplane I'm dead it can not go well sometimes I mean many people have small clots and do just fine we see people with big clots that can be very problematic but I've seen lots of people who have suddenly had a gigantic PE I mean that's the thing is like Life is 100% fatal. We can't protect ourselves from everything. Everyone dies of heart cardiac arrest. Everyone dies of something at some point. And end, someday like, your heart will stop and that will be. You could say 100% of deaths are caused by cardiac arrest. Or it's at least the ultimate end. Um, yeah. And, you know, a, you know, a friend of mine, like Celine Gounder, you know, her husband it was a big um, reporter for soccer. You know, it, it was all over the news. Grant, uh, he died of a ruptured aortic aneurysm. And was that the guy in Qatar? Yeah. Yeah, that was a totally crazy story. But I mean, there there are things like that that are just going to happen, and there's not much that you. I mean, you can screen for everything and be super paranoid, but there's actually data to show that if you over screen and over test, then you overdo procedures, and you can cause mm -hmm. more harm from that as well. Okay, so wait, getting back to this stroke thing. So oh, yeah. you're okay. You're <laughs> home, and your kids are there. Yeah, How, are they pretty young? Pretty or they, young. Mm -hmm. And you're not. You're not able to communicate. 
yeah, having a hard time communicating to my friend who lived down the street. And so then I tried calling her and I, I was like, maybe if I just call her, it will like pressure me to speak. Maybe that will solve this problem. But I couldn't speak. And Were you scared? I was more in problem solving mode. Like, I got to figure this out. Like, I got to figure out how to Oh my God, I'd be terrified. And so she said, Ann, you keep calling me. If you aren't, you know, if you're not just butt dialing me, call me back because then I'm going to get worried. I'm going to come over. And so I called her back. And so then she came over and uh, she came in the house. It was interesting because our house has a code on the door and I could enter the code, no problem. So like numbers were not a problem, but words were like out of, out of question. Like that was not an option. And so she walked in, she's not medical at all. And so she's trying to figure out what's, what's going on. And um, bless her heart. She did a great job of charades for a bit of time. And then Fortunately, she remembered some kind of training at some point about how do you identify a stroke? And one thing is like inability to speak. And she was like, wait, are you potentially having a stroke? Could you not speak at all? Or were you speaking like kind of like gibber? Like, you know, some people, there was that years ago, the lady was on TV. Remember that news reporter? And she had like, while she was, and she started just totally incoherent and everybody at first was kind of like, but then they realized she had a stroke. Yeah. I could get out some sounds. Like I could say, um, and I could make a few little sounds, but I couldn't put together words at all. So, yeah. So she called the called the ambulance? Uh, so she got her husband to come over and watch my kids, and she drove me to the ER. So what, what happened to the ER? And I had an MRI, and I started to get better on my own. Um, so it was technically called what's called a transient ischemic attack. Oh, a TIA. Yep, a TIA. So if it lasts less than 24 hours, considered a TIA. And so my symptoms completely resolved on their own. But then I underwent a series of workup after that to try to figure out what had happened. So did the clot break up? Is that what happens? Yep. So my body kind of broke apart the clot. I started to get blood flow to that part of my brain again, and that part of my brain started to work again. So, so you can have these temporary things, and then there's no long term as long as it gets works out. Yeah, you get surgery, or if it works itself out, it's not long term. Yeah, and so for you know transient ischemic attack, it's by definition transient. So mine was transient; it it cleared within 24 hours, and and then afterwards, I was doing all the follow up to try to figure out what exactly happened, and I had a echocardiogram and ultrasound of my heart that showed this very large PFO. So it showed that a lot of my blood flow was not going to my lungs at all. It was bypassing and going straight, straight across. So um, as a doctor, you like, if a non-doctor, if a non-medical person heard that, they'd probably be terrified. Did you, were, did you know, was it serious? Was it like something you could fix? Like, what did you think, what went through your mind when you, when they told you that? You know, I think it's, again, it was very much problem solving mode. Like, okay, this is the problem and how am I going to get to the solution of what this looks like? Uh, I think the data on PFOs and what to do about them has been evolving over time. What's P, what is that? Uh, PFO, uh, patent foramen ovale. So that was the name of the type of hole that I had in my heart. And a lot of people have it. It just so depends like an on actual, the size. Like if you have the heart, it's like, there's a hole, like an actual hole in it or? Yeah. So when we're born, we all, we all have that hole initially. And that's because our blood is not going to our lungs. It's kind of bypassing. And then when we're born, that hole closes for most of us problem with mine is that it didn't close not only did it not close but it had a big flap on it it had this what we call an aneurysm off of it so i had a big flap on it that was probably developing clot and forming clot there but i wouldn't have known until this event so then you had a surgery i assume pretty quick or uh well it took a while to kind of figure out like what was going to be the best thing at that time there was a lot more debate in the literature if you close these or not um and who you should close them on and who you shouldn't close them on and since then there's been more literature that has come out suggesting people who have had a significant TIA, transient ischemic attack, or a stroke and don't have other significant risk factors should have it closed. Um, but it's more common to have a TIA or a stroke from high cholesterol, diabetes, from other risk factors. 
Um, mine was just because I had no other risk factors and I had this kind of clear. So I ended up going to a clinic that specializes in PFOs and strokes to determine if I should have it closed or not. And out of that, they said, yes, you should have a closed. And so they did the procedure. So is this like, um, something in like the, the, the leg and the vein or is this like open the chest up? No. So they can do it both ways, but the way that I had it done was go in the vein. So I was, and that's when they gave me the fentanyl. (laughs) So we started down the story and they gave me a little bit of fentanyl for the procedure and I was like, do not give me any more of that. That was awful. Um, See, but, I'd be like, crank that baby up. No, I was like, he was like, oh, you're the sort of person who needs to watch and know. And I was like, 100%. And so he he was great. There's this gigantic screen that- Wait, so you, wait you watched him do it? Oh, the whole thing. And they had You were this, like asleep? No, the whole, he gave me a little bit of meds to kind of like calm down. And that made me more anxious. And so he was like, you're going to be calmer if you can just watch. And I was like, yes, that's exactly right. So oh my God. See, it was great. It was I, super cool. I don't think I'd want, for some reason I have this weird, th- I don't hate needles, but I don't, I don't think anybody likes needles. I have to watch. Yeah. <laughs> like I have to watch. But now in that case, I think I'd be like, get put me out, whatever you got to do. It was super cool. I mean, just to see the technology. And so they had an intercardiac ultrasound. So on this very thin little probe, they had an ultrasound so they could do an ultrasound from inside my heart. Um, and then a camera, and it was all up on this big screen. Watch the so whole thing. So was this something you could, like, in a couple of days you were okay, or was it a big, rec- like, recovery? No, it was super fast. I They wanted to watch me overnight to see if my heart had any of those arrhythmias, any kind of funky beating with it. Um, and so I stayed there for the night, and it was fine. And I went home the next day. And then I had a couple of ultrasounds afterwards to make sure it closed. Because basically they... It's super cool. They go through the hole and then they release one side. It has this like metal balloon on it and then they pull it tight and then they release the other side and it's another metal balloon and they kind of push them two together. And then your body endothelializes. Your body kind of uh, helps to grow cells on top of it. So now it's kind of incorporated. Do they, do they go away ever, the metal? Oh no, it's it's there. It's now like, now my body's like grown Whoa. like over it. So it kind of grows oh all the way kind of over it. So now it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a part of me. <laughs> There's no taking it out now. So, okay, so speaking of stroke, isn't there a kind of, kind of like you had, isn't there, I forget the name, isn't there a kind of stroke where you can like, you're totally there mentally, but you can't, like, you can't speak? Yeah, there's, I mean, so. Like, I, like, like you can observe everything happening, but you can't like communicate or you can't move or you, you know, is that, there's something that. So there's locked in syndrome where you cannot move at all, but you can be totally awake and alert. And that can happen from a brainstem injury. Mine, I could not speak, but I was completely alert and made my kids breakfast you know i could do everything else just couldn't speak so oh my god i'm just like thinking about if i'd probably freak out you know i mean i think unfortunately i think a lot of us have had reminders in our life on how incredibly short life can be and how one moment everything can seem fine and the next moment things change my uncle um 2016 in florida he was on outside with the pool and my my aunt saw he collapsed and Mm -hmm. They were like what's called the amb- they were there very quickly and that was an aneurysm yeah the brain and you know he was in the hospital for ten days and you know that was it I, mean, I think he never he was always it was fatal from the beginning yeah I mean there's a reason about leaving living each day to your fullest um, but I think there's a lot of things that we can do to take care of our health I think you know unfortunately you know my sister had died of suicide at age 26 and I think that was a really oh my gosh really mm-hmm, it was a really stark reminder and just how fast things can change and you know hers. That was a decision she made, very different than something like an aneurysm or a stroke. But, um, you know, she's my she's my baby sister. And so I was never expecting that to happen. And um, it, it definitely has, like, shaped my career. Have you, like, talk, ever talked about that or have never? Yeah, I mean, I, I tweeted about it. <laughs> yeah, you, were, you used to be on Twitter a lot. You, you had some, like, peaks and then you yeah. were tweeting. As, are, you, are you tweeting now or I don't really? 
it takes a lot of time. Twitter's I'm, a really bad place. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you from personal experience, very bad place. <laughs> I have I have Paxson, my you know Paxson yep. has I think it's still the same thing. It's encouraging Jeff Landfield to tweet less, tweet less, and Hans Inc. to tweet more. I did not realize that that was his thing until I ran into him at a coffee shop the other day, and someone had mentioned. Oh, it's that. been there for <laughs> years. I'm not on very much. I kind of had just had it around to watch it for a while, and then really when COVID hit. And we very much clearly made the decision in the state we were going to go towards education in as many ways as possible. I was like, okay, what tools do I have to get out as much information as I can as quickly as I learn about it? And so that's when I kind of resurrected well, the, the, my Twitter the, account. The problem is it's it's such a kind of cesspool and so political and so partisan. And then I remember it was a couple year, year and a half ago. Remember I asked you about, about that at the governor's press conference. That's and right, you did. He got real <laughs> up because some people were coming after you, some partisan people that before had been like praising you. And then all of a sudden they're like, cause he filed to r- run for reelection and then they, you know, they're attaching you to him. And then it became this kind of weird, uh, you know, thing, but it was really, really activated the governor. <laughs> He's like, let me, let me, let me, um, let me get this one. Let me get this one. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I just had not had time. It just takes a, it takes some time to like craft it. What are you going to put out there? And it's only got to be so many. And, uh, you know, as I've mentioned a few times, an awful speller and you can't correct anything once it's out there. I, th- I think now, uh, what they're, what they're saying is this Elon Musk guy, they're going to, they're going to add more characters. Oh, yeah. and, and now I just signed up for the blue. Yeah. So you now the eight bucks. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got the blue. You, you know check. What? I'll be honest. I try like the landmine is like, we're, we do news. We break big stories. We've, you know, we've like been picked up by national outlets, international outlets. And so I tried a couple times to get verified. It's like, I mean, I see people who are like, have like 20 followers. They're verified. I said, we, we have a lot of followers. We're, we're like, we do news. And they kept denying me. Like I tried like maybe three times in three years. Yeah. I tried a few times as well and never got verified. Why did, I mean, how can they not verify you? I don't know. <laughs> so it's like, it's a, it's, and then you have these weird people who are part of some small, you know, public meet, you know, and they have like 200 followers and they get a blue check mark. So Anyways, I just applied for it a couple of days ago, and I just got the blue check mark. There you go. Yeah. On the landmine. Anyways, you can um you can edit tweets now. Yeah. For like thirty minutes. Okay. Because I've many times I've done and I go oh shit and you know do you delete it no because people have already done something with it so I I they, they've been for years talking about this and also on remember remember Facebook there was the dislike button yeah they've never done that yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I struggle with that space. I mean, I think in some ways it's been very helpful. I've connected with all sorts of people I wouldn't have ever connected with uh, without it. Um, Facebook too. I mean, Alaska tends to use a lot of Facebook. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people on there. I, I I don't want a lot of like noise in my feed either. So I try to be very mindful of what I put out there that I'm just trying to put out something that's educational that I would have wanted to hear about. And so I try to just be mindful of that. But Have you seen The Social Dilemma? I have not seen the social dilemma. I've really heard about, good, though. is it? Really, I mean, it, it like you said for all the things that are good from social media. I, I mean, I, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing, I, I might not even be on it. I mean, it's so toxic, and and the thing, one of the things in the social dilemma that there's that Tristan Harris guy. He's kind of was with Google, and years ago he put out some report internally that kind of blew up about you know what we're doing with our technology and you know how it's being utilized and these algorithms and they've done these studies and you know people that are married that live together their their, their feeds are totally different yeah <laughs> right so people are living in these little worlds mm-hmm. they're, they're like kind of quote-unquote realities that's really not reality yeah it's their reality but we're all we're all in them and it's i think it's got you know huge impacts on when you talk about healthcare with COVID. i mean look at what happened 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of the reason I love working in the emergency department. You know, I don't choose who comes in. It's anyone who feels like they have an emergency at that moment. And from, you know, the CEO to the gentleman who's homeless on the street, they're in the same, you know, area, the same bed together, and we're all in the same mm-hmm. place trying to figure it out. And I, I do appreciate that it really just kind of helps to break down those barriers just remind us that we're all human. I think the more it's, you know, it's hard to hate up close. I think the more ways we can find ways to connect and learn from each other, the better off we are. Didn't you, you told maybe I heard it somewhere, maybe it was on, on, on social media, but somebody came in and they were like super anti COVID, but then you like talked to them a little bit. And then by the end of it, they were like, Oh, I really appreciate you talking to me. Now I've like got some answers that, but they came in with this like one viewpoint that was probably informed by, you know, social media or the internet. I would say there's probably not a shift goes by that isn't something along those lines. It it happens all the time. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people are skeptical of the healthcare system and rightfully so. And I can't blame people for being frustrated and angry and skeptical. And, you know, we all just know what we're exposed to or what we've been able to see. You know, I know people who have never, they don't have a single person they know in their life who's ever been vaccinated. So they're like, well, why would I, mm-hmm. you know, no one in my world thinks that's a good idea. Um, and so, you know, we all have these different places and I, I really, I I don't feel like it's my place to judge. I don't want to, um, ever come across as authoritarian in my role as the chief medical officer or my role as a physician. I see myself as a partner to work side by side with people to help make the best decisions they can for their life, for their community, for their state. Have you ever had anybody come in and be like, oh my God, it's the vaccine lady. I'm not, nope, no, I don't want to see you. (laughs) I haven't actually gotten that. (laughs) I've actually gotten more of the other side that are like. People get all flustered. They're like, I know you. You're you're Ann Zink. And will you sign something? <laughs> like, I'm going to sign your discharge paperwork. I mean, I can sign something Oh, yeah. Else, no, or... I'd, be, I'd be like, like, if, because if, you work in the Valley, right? Mm-hmm. So if I ever, someone goes down with me in the Valley and, and you're my doctor, I'm going to be like, folks, <laughs> hit, hit the lottery here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel really fortunate. I work with an amazing group of people out there. And, you know, healthcare is always hard. You're always seeing people when they're, hurt or angry or stressed or at their worst point. And so there are points of conflict and there's times of tension. Um, but I just see it as this tremendous honor to be able to work with people kind of side by side when it is a hard time in their life. And it might be their kid with a fever at 2 a.m. and they're freaked out. Or it might be, you know, myself who, you know, can't talk and is suddenly having a stroke. Mm. You don't think you should, you know, that should be the case. I, you know, had a woman not super long ago who had a different heart condition, but a very serious one. And she was super young and super healthy and, you know, just sitting there and talking to her about my experience. You know, again, my sister talking to so many people who are struggling with mental health and, and being able to be present in that moment. And honestly, my role in the emergency department, I feel, is very similar to my role in the state. And I feel like it was a huge honor to serve during the time of covid um, but it's the same thing where it's just like, what are the resources that I have available and how can we use those in as effective way as possible to get the best outcomes that we possibly can? And, um, it's a partnership and it's kind of walking with not telling how. Yeah. Speaking of mental health, I was, um, I was going to ask you about, you know, we have this homelessness problem and we spend all this money and I was talking to somebody at lunch today and it's, I just read this book, it's like, over there, it's my corner. No, I was San, looking at your book. San Francisco, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to start putting all my book club books back here. But oh, sweet. Um, it's like we spend all this money, and a lot of people focus on housing, which is a part of it. Mm-hmm. But if if you're mentally ill in this country, or like, let's just say for Alaska, if you're like addicted to drugs or alcohol, and you want to get help, there's actually really, unless you have money, there's really nowhere to go. Like, if if you decide today, you know what, I'm I'm done. I want to get help to get treatment. There's nowhere unless you have money. Or there's really the places that they do have takes months to get in. And, you know, it's like, 
we spend so much money in this country on, on health care and all these things. And, but, but when it comes down to it, if you're really sick and you want, cause there's a window, right? Like when somebody decides they want help, right. it doesn't last very long mm-hmm. if, they, if they can't get the help. No, hundred percent. I mean, we, it is really hard. And even if you do have resources to be able to get them, it's a complex, convoluted, hard to access, oftentimes very delayed service. And and that's true everywhere in the country, but this country really struggles with that. I mean, we, we have a system that in general pays for you when you're sick, but we don't incentivize helping to pay for preventative care, moving upstream or being available when you need it. So um, you know, oftentimes I tell patients like when you're physically ill, it's depressing. And when you're depressed, it physically hurts. And so same thing with homelessness. I and mean, unfortunately, you know, people aren't just homeless or bipolar or drink alcohol or, you know, have you know, sexually transmitted disease. I mean, it's all of those things and they're one person, but our systems really treat you as these individual silos. So how can we think about the ways mm-hmm. that we're doing our systems as a person, having that very human centric focus of what we do? Um, it's impressively hard at the state and federal level to try to get these systems to change, to be able to move that. And there's all sorts well, of reasons for that, but it is, it's challenging. A lot of what Michael Schellenberger, a lot of what he talks about in that book is he looked at, you know, Amsterdam and Portugal and a lot of these places years ago, there was these open, they had the open air drug markets and they had all the similar problems with mental health and they started to, you know, some housing was an issue, but you can't put somebody who's mentally ill, who's addicted to drugs and say, here's a house. You know, you, you have to get them treatment. You have to encourage them to make good decisions. And in some places in Europe, they've kind of figured that out. You know, it's like to get to get help, you're going to have to follow some rules and you have to you have to get help, too. And here in a lot of places, we just I think we just say, well, you know, people can do make their own choices. And it's it's almost like wrong or it's like people get condemned for saying you shouldn't do drugs. You shouldn't drink alcohol. You should make good decisions. If you're sick, you should if you're mentally ill. You should take take because what we've done in the you know, 70s, this really started, was we used to commit people. And then we stopped, for a lot of reasons, we stopped doing that. Um, and now those people who used to be committed, they're on the streets, but they aren't getting any, any treatment, a lot of them. And that's almost worse, you know, because it's bad for them. It's bad for all of us. Yeah, it is a complex and convoluted system. And I think that, you know, mental health is one of a series of things that are contributing to homelessness. Um, and again, I think finding ways to focus on the whole person and trying to minimize stigma. We do have a lot of stigma in the way both our system is designed as well as the way that we treat individual people. Um, but it is really hard to get your mental health meds taken and taken regularly when you don't have transportation, when you don't have a home. But it's going to be really hard to stay housed even if you have a home if you're actively paranoid and you're seeing things and hearing things other people can't mm-hmm. see or hear. And so, again, that's that kind of whole person care that – it just seems like as much money as we spend, we should be able to to figure this out, or we should be able to do a lot, be doing a lot better. I, I mean, I agree. And if you look at us compared to the rest of the world, and generally, particularly most other developed countries, you know, we spend a lot more on healthcare and have worse outcomes. Um, we have, you know, lower um, expected life expectancy, higher uh, excess deaths. Um, and that is in general because we don't pay for prevention. We don't mm-hmm. prioritize these things outside of the traditional healthcare system. You know, 80% of our health is determined things outside of healthcare. It's, do we have a job? Do we have a house? Are we connected to other people? Do we exercise? Do we have access to healthy foods? All of those other things. But that isn't how our system is set up. And so we pay a lot of money for these kind of end systems, which can be important. Um, but 
overall as a system, we're going to continue to spend more and more money and get worse and worse outcomes. Why do you think, I mean, this is, this is not a secret. We all, people know this. Mm -hmm. You just said that's not a secret. Why does it remain? Is it, is it, is it the system? Is it money? Is it people, some people are getting paid? Is it, it, I mean, hard to change systems. I mean, why, why does it, we all know these problems. We're all aware of it, but nothing seems to change. It's all of the above. I mean, the system is incredibly complex. I mean, I sometimes feel like my role here kind of, I feel like Alice in Wonderland, you know, from the outside, I was like, oh, these are all the things that you should change. And then the inside, you're like, oh, that's way bigger than I thought. And that's way different than I thought. And that's way smaller. I mean, it's, they're just really hard to change, very complex systems that have been built out over time, oftentimes to respond to some small problem that has resulted in a permanent change. Money plays a role in it. Lobbying plays a role in it. The system, there's a great graphic. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was during the Affordable Health Care Act where they tried to diagram out the healthcare system in America. It just oh, is that that like kind of flow chart thing? It's like a crazy flow chart. Yeah, I've, seen, got, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I've seen it. It almost looks like a meme. You're like, this can't physically be possible. And it doesn't even include like public health or systems of health or all of these other kind of things along those lines. So it's complex, but... I would really challenge people to not get overwhelmed by the complexity, but instead start local and stay focused on the things that you want to make change. I mean, I've seen remarkable change happen, like say in the Matsu Valley. You know, when I first started practicing out there, I felt like a drug dealer every single shift. Someone's like, come on, man, give me 10 more. It was always this back and forth of like meds and opioids. And every day you were like declaring someone else dead on the radio because someone else had overdosed on something else. And uh, it was really frustrating and depressing to work in. And then you saw people start to have conversations. You saw the Matsu Opioid Task Force come together, bring people together. Carl, who does amazing work with True North, you know, he was a patient that we used to see all the time. And he came to our doc meeting and he was like, each one of you used to write me for opioids on a regular basis. And every time you did, you told me, getting me out of this department and your scores were better than my life. And so I'm like, yeah, you're a smart guy. I might as well keep using. And to have him come just directly tell you as a clinician how. So he was like an addict. Now now he's he's a true north. Yeah, he started true north. No, he started it. Like that is all him. He used to be a regular user. The bank or the. Or the uh, True credit, North Recovery. Or Recovery. Okay. I think you're yeah. talking about the credit union. Okay. No, no. True North Recovery. He's amazing. He'd be a great guy to have on the podcast. I should get him on. What's, what's his name? Carl. Carl Strollstrom. So he was, he was just coming in and getting. Yeah. And he really struggled with addiction and he got himself clean, but not only did he get clean, but then he really kind of turned around and said, how did I get to this place and how can I create a system that's better? So he has a whole peer to peer navigation system. Now he has a way that we can call for help in the emergency department. If we need to connect people in, he's helping to create a 23 hour stabilization center. He's working up in Fairbanks. It's been really amazing to watch. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, in history, one, one person can do a lot. Yeah. And it's him doing amazing things. It's the opioid task force doing amazing things as people engaging, you know, so opioids out of the emergency department decreased by 90% over two years. And the work there feels totally different. While it's still a problem, it, I think collectively we all understand the risk of opioids in a different way. So what's, what's the one everybody always really want? Um, that starts with a D. Oh my God. Yeah. No, there's, is that, no, Demerol. there's Demerol. That's yeah. the, that's the one people like, right? Everyone's got their favorite. What Demerol? Is, is that an op- op- opioid? Or? It's, a, a, a kinda, it's a type of opioid. And honestly, when I was training the emergency department training initially, it was actually illegal. Like we didn't even have it uh, to be had because it could cause some cardiac arrhythmia. So it had a black box warning so we couldn't even get going access back, to it. Going back to that arrhythmia. Right. Going back to that arrhythmia. It's the theme of today's podcast, I guess. I, I, I know there's one really scary one. Um, Superventricular tachycardia. 
that's not my most scary one, but uh, that just sounds scary because that's really that's a fast heartbeat, right? That is a fast heartbeat, but at least it's still perfusing your. If brain. someone told me I had had that, I'd be like, "Oh, I'm dying. Here we, I'm dead." That just sounds very scary. <laughs> it's a lot of syllables. We'll just call it SVT for you. SVT. Yeah. <laughs> um. So going back to these opioids. So for for a long time, these were really overprescribed. Mm-hmm. You know, we know all the you know lawsuits and things, and and uh, you know what's going on in the '90s. Is is the reason? There's, there's maybe a problem now with these like fentanyls because people who were using for a long time, it's harder to get. Cause when I was in high school, I graduated in 03 and I never took this stuff, but I remember it was like, get some Zannies or some Vicodin or like they were there. I mean, everybody, like I played football. I mean, they just were there. Like they were not hard to get. They were kind of all around and it was, I guess, parents or their, whatever they would buy them, you know, people would get them and they would sell them for 10 bucks a pill, but now it's much harder to get those. Right. Yes is and that no. part of the problem? Well, so I mean, I think we did see in places where initially opioid prescriptions went down that we saw an increase in illicit use. So I think people who were previously addicted moved to other forms and oftentimes would move to heroin and would see an increase in heroin. And then in many states, then you would see a decrease in all of the above. So yes and no. I do think that clinicians, physicians have played and continue to play a role in both um, causing as well as helping with the opioid epidemic. I mean, People have real pain for real reasons, and you want to make sure that you're addressing your pain. And honestly, as a clinician, there's nothing harder than seeing someone like suffer and be miserable and feel like you could do something about it and not not do it or not help. So I had one doctor friend tell me that he's really nervous to prescribe opioids now because of all the things that happened. But he he says kind of what you said. He's like, I this person I, I actually really want to, but I'm he's he gets like very nervous when people ask for him, even if they're in you know real pain. Yeah. Because now he doesn't want to be tagged as one of these, you know, over-prescribing opioids. And I know a lot of it, you know, these companies, they said, oh, it's, you know, for years, oh, it's not addicting. It's all good. And, you know, it was addicting and it wasn't all good. Yeah. I mean, we were blatantly lied to by pharmaceutical companies for a long time in that space. And, um, you know, it, it we as clinicians need to own that responsibility and make sure that we're being really careful about everything and anything we prescribe. And in general, like, kind of my personal philosophy with medications is less is more like in general, I think we can cause a lot of problems, a lot of harm by just having a pill that's going to connect or fix or whatever else. Uh, There's actually a really good handout that the state made years ago prior to me coming in um, on like what is pain and how to address pain. And I think that that has been a really useful tool for me to share with patients, but also clinically to really say like, listen, you're hurting and you're suffering and I want to do everything possible to get you out of that pain. But the data is really clear that just opioids alone is not going to be a solution. It's oftentimes what we call multimodal pain. So um, making sure you're addressing it for many ways. So say you break your arm. The best thing I can do to help your pain is to splint it because then I'm going to keep those bones from moving back and forth. Ice is going to help a lot. It's going to help with inflammation. Not moving it and putting a sling is going to make a big difference. And then there was an interesting study that showed that 500 milligrams of Tylenol taken with 200 milligrams of ibuprofen was more effective than even 10 milligrams of oxycodone. And so I think there's this perception that like narcotic pain medication is like a better pain medication, but when you blind it and you don't see, actually some Tylenol and ibuprofen together Mm. is actually more effective than oxycodone. So I think- But the the oxy feels kind of nice. But the oxy feels kind of nice. (laughs) So I think that knowing that as a clinician has been very like empowering to say like, I want to treat your pain. Like here's a whole bunch of things that we're going to do. And if it doesn't work, come back and like, let's figure it out again. And let's see what else we can do. Can we do a nerve block? Can we use gabapentin? Like what other things that we can do? So I think that's- What's gabapentin? It's a neuropathic pain. So it, uh, uh, it helps with nerve pain essentially. 
So it's all. Oh, I'm learning, learning, learning so much here today. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I like doing these. You, you, sh- you should start your own Van Zink podcast. Oh, man, you do it much better. You, you got it. You got all it. You, all you got to buy is a few piece of equipment. <laughs> you can have the state, you know, build to the state. So we're going to start the. The Ann Zink Hour. The Ann Zink Hour. You know, actually, one of my colleagues, the guy in, in Kansas, he did one out throughout COVID. He did a little podcast. But, you know, we've been doing those echoes um, once a week. Oh, yeah. I, I see, I've, seen, I've seen a few of those. Yeah. They're long. Um, but they, it's what's nice about those is we bring people from around the state who are experts in different things to come together. And we're still doing them. We do them for public science. But then we'll have pop-up ones. Like right now, we have a lot of RSV cases out. And we were hearing from clinicians; they just wanted to know better how to manage little kids with RSV. So well, that's la- that's the one thing I wanted to. Last thing I want, I'll ask you about is um, this triple demic thing. Yeah. Is that? I mean, I think you probably are aware. I've I've been over co. I've I've been post. <laughs> no one no one likes my term. I call it post panty. Oh yeah. But no one likes that. So, but I'm I've been post COVID for about a year and a half. Yeah. Or BC versus AC after COVID versus before. Yes. COVID. Yes. Yeah. That, I've never heard that, but that's <laughs> yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, so, but now there's this RSV and there's flu and there, and by the way, I feel bad. I'm going to admit this. I have not got my flu shot yet. Dude, come I, on, I man. Last time we even talked, we, we did, even a, did live a podcast stream. about this. Yeah. That got a lot of views. I need to get it. I just, it's not because I, 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 mean, I, I need to get it. I just Tonight. haven't. Is, is, it too, is it too late? No, it is not too late. Seriously. Where do I go? Pharmacy on the way home. Do you have any, do you have any with you? I don't because I wasn't expecting you to be this late in getting your flu shot, man. I mean, is it too late? Like, no, it's not too late. At what point is it too late? Well, once the flu season has really kind of died down, then it's too late. But we are like skyrocketing up right now. Even with my good labs. Even with your good labs, please get them. Please. So do please, I go to like please. cars now yeah, or Walgreens? We're on the way right home. It might even I'm give you fuel points. I'm send gonna, me a photo. I'm gonna do it. I'll send you. I'll send you a photo. You seriously do. So okay, so we got this flu, and we got this RSV, and then we got this COVID still. But I mean, I don't know how much of a thing it is here, but I know in some states I've I've read that there's you know a lot of people going to the hospital, and it's starting to. In some places, there's some kind of say, overwhelmed or they're starting to get full. Is that, is that how, how big of a kind of problem is this? Yeah, it's a big problem. It's in a problem here as well. I mean, so there's a bunch of things that are happening. One, our healthcare system has been just really stretched thin and in some places kind of decimated after COVID. Clinicians have left, nurses have AC. left. Yeah, AC. People are just done. You're not the only one who's done. Um, but, you know, a lot of clinicians are like, I am never going to do that again. A lot of people feel abandoned, honestly, within the healthcare system. They feel like they were really seeing on the front lines just this awful, huge amounts of death and dying in a way that they had not ever trained to see or ever done to see. And then you'd go to the grocery tour and everyone pretended it wasn't real. A lot of people quit, right? Or a lot retired. of people quit. It was, it was really hard. You'd, you'd go into the department and people were just dying all around you. And then you would like go to the grocery store and it was like it didn't exist. And that kind of like it felt like it was almost like moral injury. Like no one believed the reality that you were seeing. Like that was really hard. It's almost like going back to the social media. Like you have your reality, what you see, and this is like a, you know, kind of different version of that, but you know, you're all day long, people are in the hospital and they see that. And then most people aren't in the hospital all day long and then they go out and see that. And yeah, I could see how that could be very, very frustrating. It was frustrating. And then you know, people say like, I'm sharing this people like, Oh, you're making that up. You're part of conspiracy or this is just the pandemic or something else along that space. And, when you're at the grocery store, you could see why that would see the case. Lab leak. <laughs> <laughs> right? But then when you're like in the department, you're like, this guy can't breathe. And like this, you know, this is really bad. Um, so I think we, we've lost healthcare capacity. So that's one thing that we've seen. And then, you know, we don't fully understand. I mean, medicine is an art. It is not a perfect science. And we are learning all the time. 
And we don't totally understand why certain flus and certain seasons come earlier or later or what all plays. But what we do know is that we are seeing more cases of flu, more cases of RSV this year. Than now, RSV, before. that's uh, kind of more for kids. Is that right? Or So it's called respiratory syncytial virus. Um, If you look at antibody testing, everybody by the age of two has had it. So it's a very common thing. It spreads quite around. When you're young, your airways are really small. So a little bit of inflammation can cause a lot of problem, but it can make older people quite ill as well. So I've seen, you know, middle-aged people, people your age, my age get quite ill from it. And we see people who get hospitalized. My my middle age. Your middle age, man. I turn 38 next week. You're perfect. So I think of like less than 18 is young, older than 65 is kind of older. And all the rest of us are just in middle age. Oh man, middle age. Sounds, Sorry, I feel. I still feel pretty good. We got good labs. I got good labs. No, I'm telling you. <laughs> my friend was like, I cannot believe. Why are you wasting your time with that? <laughs> What's the matter with you? Well, that doesn't give you an excuse to not take care of diet, exercise, and flu shot, man. Okay, I promise you. After, I actually have been meaning to go buy some groceries, so I'll go to cars. Perfect. Just so stop I, by. I can just go to the pharmacy and yep. they'll, they'll they'll jab me. They'll jab you. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll, seriously. And anyone else who's listening, it is not too late. It is perfect timing. In fact, like go get it. You now. actually, you actually sold me because for whatever reason, same thing, same reason I got the, the, uh, physical when I was a kid, my dad was never really got, and he was Navy. He got, you know, the gun of shots, you know, when he was mm-hmm. in the sixties, they gave him like a hundred vaccines, but he got really sick after a flu shot. Mm-hmm. And I just, in my mind thought, Oh, there's a risk of, and then you, we talked about it, remember? And then yep. it's like, that's not a thing. Yeah. Uh, and then that was what, three or four years ago, I guess. And then, and then I've got it every year since, but I just haven't gone, I've just been busy. So I'll, I'll do it. But that is a thing that it's like a, um, what's it called? Like a, like a misnomer, I guess. But that, that's a, a, a thing people think is you can get sick from the flu shot. Yeah. You know, your body should develop an immune response. You might get like a little bit of a sore arm. You might not, you know, feel right. You could have been exposed to the flu beforehand. And there are so many things that can look just like the flu, metanumovirus, enterovirus, RSV, all can seem very similar. I see patients all the time and they're like, I have the flu. And oftentimes you can tell from looking at them that they don't you, have you the can, flu. You can, and you can <laughs> test for flu. You can, you can you uh, test for flu. identify flu. Yeah. And so people will the most common description I see for flu is people say like, I don't know what happened, but I just feel like I just got run over by a truck. Like that's the most common description of like flu. Like I feel so awful. I'm not like, sure if every ever, bone in my body hurts. I don't know if I've ever had, maybe when I was a kid, but I mean, that, if I did, it was a long time ago. So I don't really have any memory of that. Yeah. It can I had, be I had pneumonia when I was a kid. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Like really, that was bad. I'm sorry. Remember, remember I, I was, again, I was bothering you and Drew, my dad got sick and he was, you know, luckily he fine, everything is good, but he's, you know, he turns 80 next month and he had just got really, really sick and, and they took him to the, my mom took him to the hospital and they were like, you need to go to the emergency room right now, which is kind of weird. Like you'd think they would have taken him there, but she like, I'm thinking to myself, wait, wait a minute. Like, why, why is she driving if it's, if it's that serious? And then he was like, he was in there four days and, and my sister flew, I was going to fly down. And I, I told you what the doctor told me. And I remember you were like, look, it's like kind of, you know, it's could go either way. Yeah, I'm really glad that you were able to go down and he did well because it, it can go either way. I mean, again, I am it's I think it's been really remind I've been reminded so many times during this pandemic how much our mind wants to th- see things in black and white and dichotomous like this is going to kill me or this is going to be fine. But life has a lot of grays between it. And um, I'm just really glad that he got better and recovered and has done well. But it can, it can yeah, be no, it was. I mean, the, 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 it got to the point where they were worried about um, sep- sepsis, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's a blood infection. So I was like, 
oh boy, that's the real, that's real bad. <laughs> but they, they, they gave him, you know, and luckily, you know, he was in the Navy 25 years, retired. So he, he's got, doesn't have to worry, you know, he's got good insurance and he retired from the post office. But I mean, some people who, who are that sick, I guess everybody's going to get treated, but then it's like, how much does it cost? And, you know, it's just this whole, we've talked about this before, but this whole system is so, I mean, I was in Australia, I told you I was in Australia for a year and I mean, it's not perfect. If you, if your shoulders screwed up and it's not, you know, fatal, I mean, okay, you have to wait a few months, but you, you, everybody gets seen eventually and nobody worries about getting sick and, and not having insurance. I mean, my friend just, you know, the deadline was for the exchange was yesterday and, and him and I both had the Primera, one of the lower, you know, high deductible plans. And he had something last year, like a cyst that ended up getting infected and they had to like do a surgery and it was expensive. And, you know, he's made some more money and his like premium, it's like, it's the, the per month cost is like $700 for the high plan, like the, the $8,000 out of pocket. Yeah. It's insanely expensive. I mean, when I first moved up to the state, uh, I could not purchase health insurance that covered a pregnancy. Like it was not, I could not even purchase it no matter how much I could spend on it. You know, our, like most, most physicians in hospitals actually are not employed by the hospital. So we're not employed by the hospital. So we have to get our own health insurance and crazy high deductibles. Really? Yeah. <laughs> crazy high deductibles. Super high. We buy it on the private market. Like, you know, everyone else has, and it's, it's impressive. I mean, you know, when I had that cardiac event, you know, $10,000 out of pocket came real fast. Well, I was going to say that probably cost a hundred grand or something. I mean, or the, more. The, the whole thing. More. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I had the, my, you know, years ago when I had my sign, it was, it was, it was 20, it was $50,000 for in one day because the doctor was 20 grand, the, the hospital was 25, the anesthesiologist was a couple thousand. I mean, this is like what a car costs. Yeah. You know, it's, we have amazing things in the system. If you want really unique, great cancer care. We got a great, we got great care. We got great. There's amazing care, things that care. happen. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's just the. People talk about the people that are against the single payer or whatever. They, there's waits. you got to wait. And I always say, well, some people wait forever because they don't have insurance. Yeah, I mean, it's the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country is medical debt. And, yeah. Uh, you know, almost 20% of our GDP is in that space. And, you know, we get great things out of it, but it costs us in all sorts of ways as well. And I, I there's this quote by Atul Gawande that I love, and I'm going to kind of mess it up. But he talks about how the kind of first increase in life expectancy came from investment in public health. And that's making sure that we've got clean water, running water and sewer. And unfortunately, in Alaska, we still don't have that in many communities. But that's key. The second is access to diagnostic medicine. So that's like your dad and antibiotics and x-ray, like what's going on and how do we treat it? And he really argues that the third major increase in life expectancy and decreasing costs is the way that we put our systems together so that we're able to do preventative care and all of those other things in our society that help to keep us healthy and well. And I think that's where we're really seeing the U.S. fall off from other developing countries is the way that our system is set up. Yeah, it's just um, 20%. I mean, it's a huge part of our It's huge, 20% of our GDP. But we have these, like you said, we have these, we spend more per capita and you know, in Australia or England or Canada and we get you know, worse outcomes. Yeah. I mean, we get better outcomes for certain cancers, but if you look at overall life expectancy, we get worse outcomes. So it depends on what, what are, is our goal. And, you know, there's a saying that every system gets exactly what it was perfectly designed to do. Ours is just a whole myriad of things, but I, I'm hopeful. I think that Alaska particularly, it's so big, it's so diverse that uh, you can see some of those problems and gaps in the care even more acutely in this state. And so you see some really creative ways to kind of help find solutions to it uh, and that have kind of led the country in other ways. And I, I'm, I keep being hopeful and I think I'm just an eternal optimist of finding ways to try to make the system really help patients be healthier earlier on. 
I think we need to draft uh, Ann Zink here for Surgeon General. <laughs> what do you think? That's, that's, that's a, big, a whole other role. But that's uh, a big one. That's a big one. Yeah. Now they get they 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 don't have to be military, but they wear like the uh, the so, kind of outfit, right? The the suit the. Military type outfit. So yeah, so the public health core is actually kind of, it was made actually after the 1918 pandemic. So it took like a few years, probably seven to nine years after the 1918 pandemic for people to kind of like process everything well, that I, happened. I have that book. I haven't read it yet, but The Great Influenza. You got to read that I need one. to read that. I, I bought it. I need, it's on my list. I read that one twice during the pandemic. Oh my God. Yeah. It was a good that, like. That's, that's sadistic. <laughs> it was a good like, we've been here before. <laughs> like we're going to like, there, it's amazing the number of similarities between the two. It's, so it's, the public health corps was created from, so there was a, was a mil- military. Yeah. Essentially a branch of the military after the 1918 pandemic to have a, a strategic way to be able to respond to the public health challenges that there are. And that's kind of how the surgeon general comes up that reports within the HHS, the large health and human services within the federal government. Okay. So we need, we need to, we need to get you that. That's your next move. I think. Oh, is that my next move? That, that's, <laughs> you don't want to go lateral. You want, you want to go, you want to go up. I am not part of the public health corps though. So I, I came to public health for the emergency department, not the public health corps. But that, but the, the president appoints surgeon general, right? The president does appoint surgeon general. So I, I think, you know, yeah. make it happen. <laughs> you got some connections? No, I mean, not, <laughs> not, not, no, not there. No, okay. <laughs> or local. You know, but, I am just honored to serve here. Like I can't, you know, I now am the ASTO president, so I represent all the other states and territories on the uh, federal government. It's a great name, isn't it? Uh, ASTO? ASTO, so the Association for State and Territorial Health Officers. I thought you, I thought you said ass, though, like <laughs> that ass. I was like, what's going on? What are you doing? Yes, no, ASTO. So it's uh, it has an H in it, and I keep wanting to say the H, but they tell me I'm not supposed to say the H, so it's, uh, it's ASTO. So it's Association for State and Territorial Health Officers. And so it's kind of like the NGA, which represents all the governors. It, you know, no matter if you're blue, red, in between, mm-hmm. what your role is, every state health officer is represented by by this organization. So is it all 50 states or is it like territories in there, like Guam? Or yep, territories are in there so, too. So we got the whole American, so we got the whole thing? Yep, it's awesome. So you're the, you're the head of that? I am the elected president for the year. Wow. So it's pretty cool, actually. It's Was been it- really fascinating to watch how every other state's doing it and learn. So every year they exec- elect like the, the, the membership exec- elects like the executive committee? Yeah. So there's an executive committee and then every year there's an election for president. And were, were you, were you um, opposed? Like was there, was it opposed? There were other people who did run, but I love your point of confidence were, were, there. Were, were, no, were you, were you challenged? <laughs> was it just you? Because sometimes it's like, okay, Anne's, we got we like Anne. No, there were other people running as well. <laughs> was it a open vote or was it like a? No, it was a closed vote. Would you, do you, they uh, announce the results? Yeah, so I am president. But was so it like overwhelming? Were you? Oh, like, I have no idea. They did that. Yeah, they did. I have no idea. Did you give like? A, did you go? Did y'all give a little speech? Um. Like, here, here Anne, why should we elect you? Go. So no, it wasn't. It wasn't like we campaigned. It was. Um, Were you lobbying? Were you like making? <laughs> hey guys, if you if you if I, if I can get the Dakotas <laughs> to vote for me, so good. We, we're gonna we're gonna take care of you on this one deal. You know, everyone has their own strategy on how they want to do their life or how they want to run that position. I just said it's been an honor to serve. I would be honored to continue this position. I did not call other states. I did not try to lobby. I just said. I put my name in the hat and said I'd be willing you sh- to serve. You should have hired like a campaign manager, you know, an agent. <laughs> an agent? How, how many uh, people ran? Um, I think at the end it ended up just being two of us that were in the final election. So it ended up being quite small. Wow. I didn't, when was it? So this was recently or? 
I don't remember exactly when the election was. I was my official term started in September, but I had been president elect for some time because um, you're elected president elect a year before you come into the president position. You should have you should have told me. I could have done a little article. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, I'm president of my condo board. We had our annual meeting last oh, night. Oh, that's awesome. How'd that go? It was very well. We had to okay. do it unfortunately remote because yeah. we were going to do it at Taco Elementary and the schools closed. Oh no. This would have been our first in person in like. And then the three snow. years, and I was really pushing for the in person. Yeah, I'm sure it's you can, good to see people in person. Oh yeah, but we did it on Zoom. And oh, I'm sorry. I'll be honest. I was president of my community council years ago and the Federation for Community Council, so I learned how to run a good meeting. Good for you. It's That's not a easy. Skill. No, not it's easy. Not easy at all. Especially with a lot of people with opinions, and you have yeah. to keep the keep the thing moving. Do you are you a Roberts Rule guy? Uh, something. I'm a. Yes, you have to know that. And yeah. sometimes the people in the legislature, actually, who are some of the most effective, yeah. really understand, like, well, they use Mason's rules, but it's the same thing. So, you know, they really understand the rules and the procedures. And yeah. if you understand that stuff, you can really be very helpful or you can be very distract. You, you can be very, um, I don't say harmful, but I mean, you, you, you can cause yeah. a lot of problems. Yeah, no, it's good to understand the rules of the road. Gotta, gotta, Congratulations. Got to know the rule. Yeah. I'm just on there because, uh, I, one, I don't want crazy people to run it. And, and two, um, I don't want, it's, we have half a million dollar budget. That's a big budget. You know, we have 116 units. So, yeah. you know, if you get bad people on the board, those things can, can blow up and it can be, it can hurt the values. Well, good for you, you know, and it, our democracy is made by people getting involved. And so I, I really, I love that you're involved in that. Cause. Oh yeah. I've been in there for almost, I bought it in 2012. I got on right after almost 10, yeah, almost 10 years. Yeah. I, I, it's amazing to me how much can be done by people being involved. Good people working hard, just trying to get things better. It's that's how things get done. That's how you got to show up. You got to show up. So many people complain and even in the legislature, they complain, but, but you also have to show up and you also have to like have the votes. Yeah. You know, a lot of people get mad because they don't have the votes on something and then they get angry. And instead of thinking, how can I, you know, work with people or get more people to agree with me or get new people, you know, they just get really angry. That doesn't work. I do. You know, I've kind of, I've, I've kind of over time figured that I have kind of like three basic mottos for my life. Uh, and for my professional career, it's like do what's right for the patient and the rest is noise. And that comes from a really long story that I'll have to tell you someday. <laughs> but um, it uh, was an attending who told me that. For my personal life, I, my kids always, we always used to say, I only ask one thing of you and that's that you're courageous and kind. Like just be courageous, be bold, but be kind. And then in my personal life, uh, my husband taught me this one, and it was just always show up for the climb, like show up. You can always turn around, say this isn't me, this isn't my space. Mm -hmm. I'm not, but you're never going to make. He with this, he was a big mountaineer, and I remember we climbed the back face of uh, Half Dome, excuse me, of Mount Whitney, and it was windy and rainy and miserable, and I was like, I don't want to get out of the tent. And he was like, You just got to show up for the climb. Let's just show up and we'll see. And we showed up to the base of the climb, and the clouds came apart, and it was a beautiful day, and we had this fantastic, you know, rock climb up to the summit of Mount Whitney. And it's like a movie. It was like totally like a movie. And I, I was like, you're right. Like, you just got to show up for the climb and and see what happens. So I like that. Yeah. So, so always do what's right for the patient. Make sure the kids are kind. Show up for the climb. Courageous and kind and show up for the climb. You, you got to maybe I'm if you ever free. give like a, if you ever do like a commencement speech, you can do that. <laughs> you can do that. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, he has his six rules for life. If you've ever heard that, Arnold. you should go on YouTube. It's really good. Okay. No, I mean, I think, and honestly, they have been very helpful over time. Like when I'm like stuck in some dilemma, I'm like, well, what do I do? And this, and this, and I'm like, okay, what is right for the patient? Like, what is, 
okay, this person's yelling at me and that person's yelling at me and this, like, this is what's right. This is what's going to help them be healthy and all. Then it, it just all becomes very simple all of a sudden. One of, one of my big ones I've learned is I just, you always listen to your gut. Yeah. Because <laughs> I can think of many instances where I did something that I didn't feel was the right thing, but I did it anyways, and it's mm-hmm. always the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to just listen to your your gut feeling. Yeah. I mean, these are kind of the lessons we all have to learn over time and we each have our own our own tools to kind of figure out what that looks like, but showing up is important. So like I said, I'm going to add live your best life. There you go. <laughs> I do that. There you go. <laughs> well, that's a good place to end Dr. Zink. It's yeah. been great. I've, I've haven't got to check back last time you were on the podcast, but you know, the first one we did was still one of my top podcasts. That's funny. I, didn't, I was like, like Oh yeah, <laughs> no, because, because that, that was when everything was good. Remember we were talking about COVID and mm-hmm. that was like Mar, Mar, you know, that time where everybody was like trying to figure what's out what's going on. Like we, you know, back when we were thinking it was going to be a three, three or 4%, 5% killer. Right. You know, I was, I mean, I, I was really like, initially like this is, could be really bad. Yeah. And then after, you know, maybe six months, I kind of pulled back a little bit, but, but at first it was like when nobody knew. But that's exactly life and that's science. Like, you know, we have learned a tremendous amount over time and we did not know at the beginning and ever, and we're still learning. We're constantly learning about does this work? And the virus keeps changing and other viruses keep changing and our immune system, you know, responds differently and vaccines wane over time. Like we've just learned a tremendous amount of things and we continue to learn. So I appreciate you continuing to share and learn with me as we go forward. And I got to go get my, my flu. I'll go to cars. You do. Okay. Buy some groceries too. Well, thanks <laughs> a lot for coming on Dr. Anzink, chief medical officer and president of Asto, Asto, Asto. Nicely done. Someone's going to hear that. They're going to be like, you said it wrong. That's okay. Asto. Okay. And then doctor at the uh, Matsu. You're an attending? Is that what you're? Attending is kind of a word that we use within like a teaching hospital. So I'm just a practicing emergency physician. But you're kind of like, you can can call the shots. (laughs) I'm I'm a fully boarded practicing emergency physician. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, Dr. Zink, I've got Christmas coming up, New Year's. Enjoy that. And, yeah, uh, you too. I'm sure we'll be seeing you in Juneau, I, I imagine, during yeah, session. So I'll be back down there. So okay. yeah, you take care. I'm Thanks glad again. you get a shot. Yeah, no yeah. problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, Dr. Anzink. And folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.